There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned in this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Today's guest is Julie Shelfo. Julie is the founder and executive director of Get Media Savvy, a nonprofit initiative working to establish a healthy media environment for kids and families. Julie is a longtime journalist, a former staff writer for the New York Times, and a media ecologist. She's most popularly known as the author of The Women Who Made New York, a collection of biographies that reveal how women, and not just men, built one of the world's greatest cities. Julie earned a Bachelor's of Arts, cum laude, from Barnard College, Columbia University, and a Master's degree in Media Ecology from New York University. In 2017, she received NYU's Dorothy Height Distinguished Alumni Award, named for the pioneering civil rights and women's rights activist. Julie Shelfo, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks for having me here, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you today. No, thanks so much for being with us today. I know how busy you are. As I mentioned, you're a media ecologist and you've had a long, successful career as a journalist. We all know what a journalist is and what one does, but what is a media ecologist and what does one do? Or should the first question be, what is media ecology and then what does a media ecologist do? So thanks for asking. I think my parents are still trying to figure out why I got a degree in something called media ecology. But media ecology is the name for studying information environments and the role information environments or media environments play in shaping human perception and as a result, society. Because the way that we communicate and the methods we use to communicate um, often really reshape our perceptions and affects our decision-making. So if you go back through human history and you look at the time we were living in caves, every time there was a major shift in civilization, it was actually predicated on a shift in our methods of communication. So when we developed writing as a species, you know, it actually led to a lot of changes in the way we lived, the way we uh, were able to trade, lots of major shifts. So um, media ecologists study this and apply it to our current media environment. And what drew you to that field? You know, I mean, I guess I was just always curious about the ways in which media shaped human beings. I mean, from the time I was a kid in high school, I was always just sort of watching people follow trends and and dressing the way they saw celebrities dress or the, you know, there would be an advertisement for something and everybody would run out and buy it. And I was sort of curious about the psychological um, drivers that made people uh, so affected by information they received from different sources. So um, as an undergraduate, I actually designed my own major in the social sciences um, and looked at psychology, sociology, uh, as well as political communication. And so Media Ecology was a program started at NYU by Neil Postman, who wrote a book years ago called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And I realized that what I had been thinking about was media ecology. I just didn't know the name for it. And what is the fundamental concept behind media ecology and how does it differ from other approaches to studying media and communications? So that's a really great question. I mean, media studies is kind of similar. Um, Media, you know, you, you could call 
media ecology, media studies, but the particular approach of a media ecologist is someone who says, you know what, you can't only look at the media alone, you have to look at the context in which it's being understood. You know, in popular parlance, you hear people talking about intersectionality. And um, really what that means is that you can't only look at one lens to think about a situation. You need multiple lenses. So a media ecologist would say, okay, not only is... um, uh, our, our podcast growing right now, but what else is happening in society that is making people so interested in podcasts? What, what values, um, what um, qualities, facets of the podcast listening experience are meaningful to people? Um, and why in this current contemporary moment in society um, is that so valuable to people? So that's really the difference between media ecology and media studies. And in terms of sort of a uh, theoretical underpinning that you could take to other applications. You know, a media ecologist uh, also studies a lot of anthropology. So if you go back and you look at work by guys like, you know, Walter Ong, you know, he wrote a book um, called Orality and Literacy, in which he tried to document the huge differences between um, societies that existed in oral cultures versus those um, that live in written cultures. And what's really interesting about that is that since the rise of social media and the internet, you actually see a return to a lot of the qualities that existed during the times of oral societies as op- opposed to the qualities that evolved out of the era of literacy. So anyway, it's about taking these sort of lens of analysis and applying it to entire media systems. I'm going to go back to something you just touched on a moment ago regarding podcasts and their growing um, increased interest. We know there's been a ton of studies done in terms of society in general having about a 90 second attention span when it comes to social media and, and videos. But your point with podcasts, their popularity has grown you know, exponentially, certainly throughout COVID. They're mostly significantly longer than 90 seconds. Is any thought there in terms of why podcasts are so popular versus the the average attention span of watching a video clip? Oh, do I have thoughts, Chris? I mean, <laughs> so <laughs> we second can get show? into it if you want. I mean, this is so you know, this is part of get media savvy because what's happened now is in the era of the internet and in social media, we have what I would call a very dysfunctional media environment where not only did 24-hour cable um, sort of open up the possibility of us getting nonstop information, but there is endless information from endless sources and 99.9% of it is junk. Um, Junk can be fun. And I love you know, watching um, bad television as much as anyone else, but there's a place and a time for it. And if we are constantly filling our brains and our bodies with junk information, um, it leaves us hungry for nutrition. It leaves us hungry for quality. Um, and it also can really overwhelm us. And that's sort of, you know, we can talk about that later, but, but it was in my reporting about some of the really detrimental effects of the media environment that we are living in that, that made me realize we needed to make some serious changes. So yeah, I would, I would um, wager to say, venture to say that it's the mess of the, the, the most of the media environment that we all live in now and the way we're inundated with garbage that has a lot of us, um, people who like to think critically, uh, looking for quality information sources where our brains can actually absorb things in longer increments than 90 seconds. 
I love what you just said, your quote of extraordinarily dysfunctional and very unhealthy in terms of the current media environment. I think that dovetails perfectly in the next question of what what role does media play in shaping our perceptions and thought processes? And how much has that role changed in the past five, 10, 20 years? So, you know, when we're born as infants, the information that we get is primarily from our parent, really primarily a mother, right? And you hear the sounds, you see things, and all the information we intake into our bodies and brains comes from what's happening around us. Media are products usually or content that human beings produce and we make choices about what they look like what they sound like what the duration is and it's been over the last century that we've seen this incredible evolution from human beings taking in media for just a small portion of the day and the rest of their lives being spent doing interpersonal real life interaction with human beings versus where we are now, where adults are spending upwards of 10 hours on a screen every day. And the data suggests even young people can be on their screens as many as six, seven, eight, nine hours a day. And so what's happened is that we have radically altered the way in which human beings are growing up in this world and the way in which they're perceiving information about themselves and the world. And we've radically altered the uh, diet of human beings in terms of how much of their information they take in comes from media versus from the natural world and from their experiences with other human beings. And there's lots of evidence that shows this is unhealthy. It's uh, media overuse. We're taking too much of it in and we're taking in too much garbage. And it's not good for our brains. It's not good for our emotional well-being. And it's not good for our democracy because we're all kind of fired up. And, and you know, there's a new book out um, today, I think is the pub date for it, but it's called Outrage Machine, how tech amplifies discontent, disrupts democracy, disrupts democracy and what we can do about it. You know, that's what's been happening is all of these short forms of content that um, are promoted because they fan the flames of conflict are putting us in an emotionally charged state all the time. So that's safe to say that media's influence on us is accelerating? Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's not only accelerating, but if you want to get really dark, I mean, there's some researchers who think, um, well, let me let me say that again. I, there are there is evidence that it is actually rewiring our brains. Um, there was um, th- there's been a lot of research showing that the neural pathways that sort of Uh, need to grow in order to allow us to be patient, allow us to read long books, allow us to tolerate discomfort. Um, Our brains are going in different directions because we're not exercising those muscles as often. And because we're being triggered constantly um, into sort of what you would call a traumatic state, like the fight or, or flight system is activated. So, you know, I don't, you can definitely say we're being um, influenced by media more because we're exposed to so much more of it. And look, as a species, I think we've been making some really dumb decisions. You know, we've put screens everywhere. We've put screens in our elevators, in our gas pumps, in our taxi cabs. I'm a news junkie. I'm a journalist, but I'm also a parent. 
you know, I have three sons. Um, and when you made the introduction, you, you um, mentioned my work, but not that part of my experience. And that has really influenced me because I vividly remember taking my oldest son um, in a taxi once to go see a show together. And a news report came up on the taxi screen about an axe murderer, you know, killing three people in this bloody apartment. And my son was like eight or nine years old. I mean, no child needs to receive that information. So I was quickly like, look out the window. But I was also so mad. Why have we put these screens in the back of taxi cabs? We don't need to be entertained constantly. So um, yeah, media is influencing us and we humans are, are responsible for these changes. You know, you talked about your son. Uh, my wife and I, our, our youngest uh, son, he just graduated elementary school, 11, going to middle school. And we just got him two days ago, uh, his first phone. Because uh, that's sort of the graduation gift you get around here and you know, starting to do more things independently. But the first thing we did was put those parental controls on and lock down when the phone can be opened and when it can be closed and what you can or cannot access. And that's a full-time job, just monitoring kids' social media activity. It, it's insane. I mean, you know, it, Chris, it's, it's not just insane. I would, I would use a different words. I would say it's not possible. Um, I, you know, when my oldest was born, there were no iPhones and Mark Zuckerberg worked at a small company called the Facebook. Uh, by the time my second was born and I took him to preschool, I noticed that all the other parents were taking photos of their children and posting them because they all were on Facebook. And now, you know, that they were inadvertently training their kids to have their to be photographed all the time and put their lives online. And now my third son is growing up in the world of TikTok. And even though I took TikTok app off his phone, his friends still send him TikToks. YouTube has, um, you know, introduced these much shorter reels that kind of emulate TikTok. And so, you know, I don't think it is humanly possible for any parent to um, limit the content. And unfortunately, I have now met too many parents who, despite all their efforts to uh, monitor content and limit content, their children have been exposed to dangerous things, violent things. And um, I'm assuming this podcast is just for adults because this is not for children, but um, also suicidality, uh, you know, information about how to commit suicide, bullying, things that have, have, have led directly to children's deaths. So, you know, I, I didn't know about wait until eight when, when my children were that age, um, wait until eight is a pledge that parents can take where they don't give their kids phones. The minute they get into middle school, they wait until eighth grade. I wish I had known about it and I wish I had done it because the second we give them these devices and access to the internet, there is a world of content that they can um, see and that will be promoted to them. And these tech companies are not doing what they need to do to empower parents to take control of their kids' media diets. They make these parental controls um, easy to override. There is no scheme these kids can't think of. They, they can hide apps on their phone. They can override them. My middle son once chose, there's something Apple gives called one more minute, where even when their time is supposed to be up, they can press one more minute and stay on an app for one more minute. My child did it for six hours once, one more minute for six hours in a day. And when I began researching it, you can look, anyone listening can look themselves. There are thousands of parents who have been begging Apple for years to get rid of that feature because of kids doing this, and they haven't still. We're going to talk about regulation later on, which you touched on briefly. And I never heard about the wait until eight. I wish I knew that a week ago. 
I'm sorry, Chris. No, it's okay. That's a life lesson, I guess. Uh, do media ecologists consider the media's impact on our social interactions and the formation of groups? And specifically, I'm thinking in particular about the followers of politicians who have a big social media footprint. In general, how has the advent of digital media transformed these dynamics? Okay, Chris, the, you ask really good questions, and there have been like dozens of books written to try to address that question. And I have read many of them, and I will do my best to summarize it in a really short, um, you know, summary. But you know, this goes back to the research that exists in social psychology and in psychology. Um, human beings are animals. We um, have a habit of thinking in terms of in-groups and out-groups. And uh, people who have access to mass media have a much easier time in um, becoming popular and, and galvanizing people to be excited about a particular identity. And the strategies that um, leaders use are often very similar throughout history, whether you're talking about Hitler or Mussolini or anybody that has employed propaganda. If you study the propaganda techniques that Hitler used in terms of film, in terms of posters, ad campaigns, again, they all just always follow the same pattern. You talk about people being in groups and you talk about out groups and you convince everybody to bully one another. Um, Dr. Seuss wrote a book about this. It's called The Sneetches. And uh, it, The Sneetches is all about who has stars upon thars. And one group has stars and everybody wants the stars and then they all get the stars. So they all take off the stars and all, you know, we can, we can constantly define ourselves in terms of groups and, and create differences. It's also possible to have narratives of inclusivity. Um, but the truth is they're not as dynamic, right? Conflict sells. Um, and so these politicians who've been able to use the media to um, fan the flames of divisiveness have definitely been able to get bigger audiences. So a media ecologist, um, I can't speak for all of them, but certainly as part of my studies of media ecology, we looked at people throughout history who have used the media to um, build up support for their political views. And people can also effectively use the media to build up support for positive ideas, right? Um, we all remember the ice bucket challenge and how cool it was that social media could be employed in service of getting people excited to support a worthy cause. So, you know, what media ecologists say about, you know, Neil Postman used to say this all the time, that every, um, every media gives you something and it takes something away, you know, so rather than use like sort of judgment words, this is good, this is bad, we just need to acknowledge that what's great about something like a Twitter was that it could instantly um, allow anyone to bypass the gatekeepers and become a mass media publisher. But what's bad about Twitter is it could instantly allow anyone to become a mass media publisher and bypass the gatekeepers so that you now have a world of content in which everybody with an ax to grind anybody with an opinion could um, take up the same amount of oxygen as a scientist who's studied for decades as an expert or a real authority. So um, I, I think I, I went too far off your question. No, there, no, not at all. It was fantastic. Um, and I want to touch on your positive idea statement there. You know, that's something that, that this show, Next Steps Forward, is always focused on in terms of 
well-being, leadership through adversity. Um, and you talk about positive ideas, but also want to go back to the, the politician piece. We try and stay away from politics on that show because we want positive ideas. Yet we're talking about uh, the politicians that are using social media to, to, to your point, fan the flames of their, their following. And from my perspective, and I was a political science major undergrad many moons ago, but it seems like, you know, you think about the population as a bell curve in terms of your political beliefs. You've got the five or 10% on each wing, and then roughly 80% of us are somewhere in the grayish middle area. We'll agree to disagree more often than not. But how come it seems in today's very divisive world, which you've touched on, that the, the loudest ones with the biggest social media are the ones with the biggest bullpit out there? Is it because they're the ones making the most noise? And I ask because with 80% of us, you know, roughly in that middle area, why aren't more people stepping up in that middle area saying, look, enough's enough. Let's flatten this out a little bit or give me the bullhorn to give you my perspective on things. And again, just your own perspective on that. Well, it's it's not just my perspective, but but there's been a lot of documentation how the algorithms for social media amplify content that is the most sticky. And as a journalist, I know that High, highly dramatic narratives always are more compelling than, you know, a boring narrative. The, the fact that a dog bites a man is not a news story because it happens every day. But man bites dog is a news story. It's unexpected. It's surprising. So any kind of content that has a high emotional um, impact, that is high conflict, if there's you know, all of the, the, the things that have always attracted human beings to gossip throughout human history, anything that's prurient, sexual, you know, unexpected, um, violent, these are things that we're just naturally drawn to. So these algorithms have been promoting that kind of content. And that's a big conflict that now is sort of coming before the courts because these um, social media platforms have enjoyed legal immunity from any content on there under Section 230. But a lot of parents whose children have um, lost their lives because of what was directly promoted by social media, they are now uh, suing to try to hold these platforms accountable for writing algorithms that promote um, kind of the worst ideas. (laughs) So how does media literacy fit into things? And by that, I mean, what skills and knowledge are important for individuals to be media literate and to navigate media environments effectively and safely for our own mental and emotional well-being? So having media literacy skills or being what I call media savvy means that you understand fundamentally that all media is created by human beings and inherently is going to direct your information towards certain things and away from other things. And Every time you get some information, um, you are by definition not getting other information. And that doesn't mean that someone's hiding from you. It's just that in this 60-minute podcast, you can only get 60 minutes worth of information in there. There might be 10 times as much information about media ecology out there, but we can't fit it in there. And so if you understand those things, then when you are reading a news article, a a scientific article, you're reviewing research, it enables you to see that some information might be missing and that it's okay to sort of keep um, an open mind about what else might be out there. 
the other important thing about media literacy is that it helps you recognize that not all information is created equal. Um, I believe in facts. Um, your name is Chris Meek, I believe. I don't know if that is your entire legal name. Maybe it's Christopher, maybe it's not. Maybe you have a middle name. And to verify that, is, that it is in fact true. Um, I, as a journalist, I wouldn't even take your word for it. I would look for legal documents and I would check out your birth certificate and I would check out, you know, you see what I'm saying? There's ways of establishing facts and the blurring of lines between professional journalist organizations and entertainment um, uh, content that calls itself news, I think is really been uh, unfair to the American people because people do not understand that not all information is created equal. And so there are programs on cable television that have called themselves news programs, but they're not professional news. They don't run corrections when they make an error and there's too much hyperbole. So having media literacy or being media savvy gives you a set of critical thinking tools so that you can navigate all the different things in the media environment with a little more skill and recognize sort of what you should allow in your brain, what you shouldn't. And we're all gonna consume some junk content sometimes, but hopefully it makes you a little more empowered to um, make choices about what's best to put in your brain and, and what you should limit. Critical thinking skills. That's a phrase I haven't heard in a while. And I think social media might be uh, getting rid of that for all of us, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, by design, I mean, I opened up Twitter the other day. I don't actually go on that platform very much and anymore because I just feel like it's junk content and I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of spending every day doing that. And I opened up the, the app and a prominent CNN reporter who I have a lot of respect for posted that his dog died. And I was sad, of course, because that's awful and nobody likes losing a dog. But at the same time, I was like, wait a minute, is this national news? Like if you have taken on the responsibility to be a news leader and help provide the public with information that you deem is really important, you know, as a journalist, like, I just don't think my story is the story everybody needs to hear, you know, and social media has enabled everybody now to be a celebrity and have their own platform. And it's just created a, um, a, a mess. There's just too much content out there and it's overwhelming. And then quality things can't come through as easily. What you're saying is nobody really cares what Kim Kardashian had for dinner last night. Well, actually, millions of people care. <laughs> Unfortunately, <he's> a celebrity, <laughs> and you know what, and that's fine. But I guess what I'm saying is, we need to do a better job. And, and part of what Get Media Savvy is working towards is doing a better job of identifying for people what what is news, what is entertainment, and and stop allowing so much blurriness between the two. Because entertainment's fine. I mean, we all need it and want it, and it's fine. But it shouldn't be allowed to overtake um, quality information. And we need to have media literacy in school so when kids grow up, they can differentiate. Julie, I'm enjoying our conversation. Is it okay if we skip the commercial break? Sure, no problem. There's a lot to cover here. That's, I think it's very important for everyone to hear this. So during your years at the New York Times, you wrote stories about how we live in contemporary American society. And I know that you delve deeply into the relationship between social media and teen suicide. Before to the topic itself, did that experience change you professionally or in your personal life? Um, 
Yeah. I mean, I guess I've covered mental health and suicide for a really long time. And um, I think like any parent, once you encounter other parents who have lost children, everything looks different. And you begin to say, okay, um, what's most important here? And how do we make choices and conduct ourselves in ways that are going to create the world we want to live in. And so I'm not particularly a prude, but for example, you know, and I, I, I love foul language. I've worked in newsrooms my whole life, but you know what, when I became a parent, I was like, you know what, I'm not going to speak that way in front of my children. They need to understand there's a, a different way that you might talk in a locker room than you would talk in the workplace. And what's happened is social media and the internet have kind of exploded all of these different contexts. And we are now kind of um, showing children things they shouldn't see and everything's out of context. And then we're upset because they don't know how to conduct themselves. And really it's about us getting things back in order. So back to your question, you know, when I um, realized the extent to which social media and mental health were intertwined, that really was part of what inspired me to kind of move into this new role and dream up a nonprofit that could try to connect the dots between all of these different issues in society. Because lots of people have been telling us about why social media is dangerous, but there are still millions, billions of dollars spent on promoting devices to us and normalizing it. And then you have people who are working on fighting mis and disinformation, but a lot of times they're not really talking to parents who, if they understood how much disinformation is being shown to their children, then, you know, I wouldn't have bought devices for my kids, which I did if I had understood what they were going to be exposed to. Um, and those folks aren't talking to the mental health experts who literally have, you know, we have a national crisis on our hand. The American Academy of Pediatrics declared a national crisis. The state of Colorado two, two years ago now declared a crisis because they, they ran out of pediatric um, psychiatric beds in their ERs. I mean, think about that. That's breathtaking. So we, we as a society really have to get, I think, things back on track. Yeah. I, I appreciate what you just touched on. I founded run a, a mental health nonprofit. And when I do, you know, Google news search every day is to see updated articles type in mental health, at least two and a half out of four are on children or teen mental health. And it is a crisis that you know, from the, the highest mountain, I want to scream out that the people need to be aware of it. Parents have to open their eyes and, and just become involved and engaged. Your point, it's more than a full-time job, but we can, we have to keep trying to do something. Well, it's not, it's not, you know, I had an op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle a couple of weeks ago. And what I said was that it's not enough to keep plugging the holes in the dike. Like we need to recognize that there has been a sea change and we need to put some limits in what content our kids have access to and when they can use devices. The big landscape where this is playing out now is actually in schools because teachers cannot teach with kids on their cell phones. Um, but sometimes in classrooms, they are assigning homework on Google Classroom and they tell the kids to take out their phone. Now, the second you take out their phone, you have these algorithms in these social media feeds 
created by the best designers in the world who are paid lots of money to do everything they can to get your attention. And our brains are wired to become addicted to those little um, vibrations, those likes, those hearts. And so it's not really fair to a 12 year old to say, don't, don't look at social media when you're using your phone, you know, for math, how are they supposed to ignore that? So uh, what we're doing is bringing people together and looking at the best research out there. And we're going to be proposing some guidelines on when these things should come into schools, when they shouldn't, um, what, you know, this, we're, we're really listening to the surgeon general who came out and said, he does not think, um, children under 13 should be anywhere near social media. And we've even heard from other people that 16 is, is a more reasonable cutoff. Well, I think this seems like a good point for you to tell us about get media savvy. How and when did it start? What is your geographic reach? Who's your target audience and how's it going? What keeps it going? Oh, well, you know, the whole idea for it kind of began a couple years ago when Donald Trump kept talking about fake news all the time. And as a journalist, it made me really frustrated because I had devoted my entire career to fact checking every single word, letter and sentence of every story I had ever published. And I'd certainly made a couple mistakes because um, I'm a human being, but it wasn't fake news. Um, and I did a TED talk in which I tried to talk about the fact that we needed a much bigger vocabulary to really address all the complexities of what was happening. And I didn't want to talk about media literacy because when you say that, it kind of puts people to sleep. I think media literacy is a really boring name. So getting media savvy was my way of trying to rebrand it and encourage people to pay more attention to the resources that media literacy offers. Um, but I became a nonprofit earlier this year. And the idea was to bring together lots of people who are working on different facets of this problem and develop a shared message set framing that we could all use and repeat it through all the different interventions that are happening now and in the future on all different types of media so that uh, across the country, parents could sort of wake up to um, the risks to their children uh, before their kids have a problem and that we as a society could push back against um, something that NYU professor calls techno chauvinism, which is a really wonderful, funny name, but she says that techno Chauvinism is the idea that um, the solution to every problem is always technology. And it's not, you know, tech can be fun and tech can be helpful. But every time you employ a technology, um, you might be getting certain efficiencies, but you might also be losing something. And so what we have learned now is that if you um, connect with people primarily online, you're gaining access to people who are geographically not close to you, but what you're losing is that interpersonal connection and rapport, which actually is really important for human well-being. Um, or that if you get all your news from Twitter, um, maybe you're getting a lot of information from a broader array of information sources, which is a, a good thing maybe. But what's bad is that you don't know what if it is true? You don't know if any of it's been vetted, fact-checked. So um, Get Media Savvy is subsisting right now on donations. Um, actually, most of the um, inaugural donations came from me. Uh, it's something that the work I've been doing pro bono, um, but we are uh, putting together a couple of different media campaigns that will 
come out in the not too distant future. We have some wonderful partners and in the fall or spring, we'll be introducing a group that's um, uh, specifically designed to give parents the support that they need and to join parents together as a political force so that we can support initiatives in Washington to insist on regulation that every other form of mass media has always had throughout this country's history. If people want to get involved or to donate, where can they learn more about Get Media Savvy? Thank you for asking. The website is www.getmediasavvy.org and all of the information is there. We have a team of amazing founding advisors who are preeminent researchers in the field, um, people who are completely devoted to child mental health, people who understand the intricacies of media, as well as people who work in media, and a couple of celebrities who are deeply concerned about child well-being. And so we really appreciate all of their involvement. But right now, we're just asking people to sign up for our newsletter so that we can keep them updated. Uh, we don't want to use social media as the primary method of communicating. And we also are really respectful on inboxes because we realize people are inundated with so much. Um, the last thing they need is another message every single day. So um, we only send out occasional announcements when there's really something for them to um, learn or get involved in. And again, that's getmediasavvy.org. So Julie, you were right when I shared our, our Q&A before the show today that there's way too much content on here. And my communications director, Eric, did a hell of a job on this. But something I want to focus on, we touched on briefly before, one story that you covered was the tragic death of a University of Pennsylvania freshman named Madison Holleran. Who was Madison Holleran and how did social media shape her life? Oh, Madison was a beautiful, beautiful young woman at the University of Pennsylvania who was also a very accomplished athlete. And unfortunately, she um, died by suicide a few years ago in the same calendar year or school year as several of her um, classmates. And whenever there is a cluster of suicides on a campus, it raises red flags that everybody becomes very concerned. And in the case of Madison Holleran, um, this was sort of in the earlier years of Instagram, people were particularly troubled because her feed was filled with all these glowing photos. Um, and in fact, she posted a photo of um, a restaurant outside. She had been at with her friends on the same night that she um uh, decided to end her life. And so there was a real disconnect in what people were seeing and what was happening internally. Um, so I don't know enough about um, Madison's internal life that I would feel comfortable describing how social media had shaped her life. But what I can tell you is that it was really an eye-opening experience for the university and for her peers because they could really see that what she presented externally and through her social media feed had very little to do with what was happening internally. And again, that's sort of the nature of media, right? You know, uh, uh, we're doing a podcast right now. And thankfully, everybody can't see how disheveled I am today. Right. <laughs> and if they did, then maybe nobody would want to listen. Um, and, you know, Instagram is a visual medium. Television is a visual medium. It favors appearance. And um, appearances are nice and good looking people are nice to look at. But not everybody looks like a supermodel, uh, except for you, Chris, who I 
tell you have, you know, had a, another career doing that. Um, but if we live in a world that is so visually oriented and we began saying people have to look a certain way, we miss out on all kinds of talent and all kinds of other gifts that maybe aren't visual. So um, in that particular case, and that story I did for the New York Times, it's on my website is juliescalfo.com. And I have many of my articles there. People can find it easily there if they want to read it. But that story actually tracked a different um, University of Pennsylvania student who had attempted to take her own life and had eventually kind of overcome um, the hold that social media and depression had on her. She was an amazing, amazing person. And she was really brave, I think, in telling her story because she wanted to inspire others. But, you know, this is a real issue. Unfortunately, um, we are seeing an uptick not only in depression and in suicide, but in self-harm, in eating disorders. Um, we are seeing suicide affecting uh, populations that used to have lower rates than their peers, um, an increase in um, Black youth, Hispanic youth. I mean, it's it's terrible. It's just terrible. And we all can't help it. When we look at Instagram, we feel like we're missing out. And, and we often turn that on ourselves. Well, like you said, it's, it's a crisis right now. And so I'm glad you're out there being part of the tip of the spear for us on that. Are there any specific social media platforms that are associated with higher rates of teen suicide or self-harm, or is it simply a matter of unrealistic expectations and comparisons? So, Chris, I wish I could answer that question for you, and there's a lot of researchers who would like to answer that question for you, but and it's an issue that um, numerous uh, folks who are interested in tech reform have spoken about, but right now these social media platforms operate like a black box. They have all the data and we don't have access to it. And the only time we've gotten access is when there's been a whistleblower who's revealed it. So, you know, I, for example, I, in my, in my lay opinion, um, would have bet every, everything I owned about on the date the Instagram changed an algorithm because I noticed many professional women I follow started sharing sexy selfies and they made notes in it that the algorithms had stopped showing their feeds to people. And so writers who had never kind of showed a revealing photo were suddenly in bathing suits, you know, artists who had maybe shown a little skin were suddenly um, topless. And, you know, it, it made me sad because um, we cannot tell you, we cannot tell parents that this platform is promoting more violent content, or this platform is promoting more self-harm content, or this platform is so, is, is, is promoting social media con, uh, sorry, more, more, um, uh, eating disorder content. I can tell you that there are a few lawsuits now because parents found that their children were searching for help and inspirational videos and the algorithms actually returned the opposite. And evidence like that speaks directly towards what is dangerous in these algorithms. So no, I cannot tell you that um, one platform is better than the other, but I can tell you that when I was doing a story for Boston Globe 
about um, hate speech that I began following um, a rise in hate groups joining Instagram as um, Facebook kicked was cleaning up and kicked them off. There were more and more hate groups showing up on Instagram. I will tell you that when I reported on TikTok, I mean, anybody can see this for themselves. TikTok um, has an entire page where law enforcement in every country can contact them because uh, if young children are posting videos of themselves dancing in which they think they're very cute um, in which they are cute, if they're a member of your own family, but if a pedophile is looking at that and has different ideas and um, it can become a dangerous way to connect uh, predators with victims. So um, no, I can't answer which one is the worst, but all of them have, have uh, challenges. Well, you touch on, on pedophiles there. And one of the big issues that I focused on for the show has been human trafficking. And obviously social media is a big part of that. And so just being aware of different things to look for, look out for uh, is just all I keep telling our, our listeners and viewers for, and I guess maybe to that point, do you, are you aware of any, some potential warning signs or red flags in social media that indicate a teenager might be at risk of self-harm or suicide? Oh, um, okay. So there, there are wonderful um, resources online for suicide prevention and, um, uh, resources for people who are in distress, you know, you can always um, text the crisis hotline. Um, parents can go to, I think the website is save.org and I'm going to check while we're on the phone. Um, yes. Um, go to save.org. It's suicide awareness voices of education. And there are resources there for, um, parents and concerned people and things that you can look for. Um, the problem I have found with social media again and again with people I've interviewed and with my own children is that it's almost impossible to see everything they are seeing. Um, when they use Snapchat, the messages disappear quickly. Um, and on Instagram or any of these others, you know, you just don't see what they scroll through. I get things promoted in my feed that are shocking sometimes. And I'm sort of worried that the kids are going to see this. And the thing is, every child is different, right? So, you know, my oldest used to spend a lot of time online watching videos to learn how to be a good catcher in baseball or how to, how to wake surf. And he sort of, um, you know, watched longer educational videos. My younger one developed an interest in video games and um, he briefly had an account on discord and left the computer open one night. And when the beeps woke me up in the middle of the night and I began looking at the chat he was involved in, I was horrified. There were racist jokes, jokes about rape, things that no, no, that shouldn't exist. I don't, you know, but certainly no child should see them. So that account was immediately closed. Um, so it's really hard to know what's happening. Um, I will say that anytime I have felt the need to examine my children's phone and look at photos there and look at conversations there, it has always paid off. I once found out that my son, despite our agreements, um, had begun a conversation with a, a teenager in another country. Um, and he had told her where we lived. You know, he had agreed that he would never tell a stranger where he lived. He gave our home address. Who knows if this was really a teenager, but later this teenager told my son that she was suicidal 
And um, he hadn't told me. And I ended up tracking her down and contacting her school. And indeed, this girl was in a dangerous place and her school was able to help her. But, um, you know, if you can have a media agreement with your child, there are sample contracts available all over the Internet. We're going to offer our own soon um, at GetMediaSavvy.org. You know, people can look back there and we'll have some available and you can modify it. And your kid's not always going to follow the agreement, but at least it's a start point for a conversation about what's appropriate, what's not, what's expected, what's not. And until a certain age, I think it is wholly appropriate for parents to be um, users of the phone as well or the device as well and, and review everything possible that they're seeing. What steps can and should social media platforms take to create a safe online environment for teenagers and reduce the risk of self-harm and suicide-related content? So, you know, we live in a country with free speech, which is important, and I want to preserve that. Um, at the same time, there's a real tension between free speech and dangerous speech. We don't allow people to yell fire in a movie theater, but we allow people to go on Twitter and yell fire. And um, even people in official um, leadership positions have said things that are very dangerous and encouraged behavior that's violent. So I don't want to, you know, in a podcast, propose explicit policy. Um, but I do think there are very good reasons to say that minors should not be on social media, that it should be for adults only. I do think that, um, you know, for example, Pinterest made a decision long ago that they would not allow um, content on their website about vaccines because they found even before COVID existed that there was a lot of misinformation and they realized how dangerous it could be. Uh, so I give them a lot of credit for making the decision early that, that their platform was not about scientific information and they weren't going to allow it. Um, I think that social media platforms could do something similar about certain topics. They could say that we're not going to allow content about this type of topic here. Um, and, you know, I also think there should be guardrails up about ownership and, and, and access Um when Twitter started, I had a blue check mark, and I had a blue check mark because I really was Julie Galvo from the New York Times. Before I got hired by the New York Times, they had to do a background check on me. I had to pass a drug test, all of these things that vetted that I actually was a responsible person and was who I said I was and could be contacted that, you know, they took away the blue check marks, they put back the blue check marks. Instagram offers blue check marks, but not because they verify you're who you are, but because they verify that you're popular. So, you know, there's all of these different systems that um, promote different values. And I think what we need right now in the nation to sort of take the next step forward is to really prioritize having a healthy media environment, meaning one in which content is age appropriate. We are not overwhelmed with screens and 24-hour content, and that quality news is differentiated from entertainment. And making those changes is really going to require buy-in from everybody. Thank you for that gratuitous plug on Next Steps Forward. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> now it's my turn. We've got about five or so minutes left. You're in demand as a public speaker. How can some of their audience get in touch with you if they'd like you to speak to their group or if they'd like to see you speak somewhere? 
Um, wow, thank you. Um, my website, julieskelfo.com, J-U-L-I-E-S-C-E-L-F, like Frank O, um, has a contacts page where all, you know, my speaking agent is available to talk about schedule and that kind of thing. Um, I have a sliding scale on what I charge. I try to make myself available to classrooms and nonprofit groups as much as possible. Um, I also work with a number of people in the media literacy and the mental health space. And I'm always thrilled when I can make a recommendation for um, other speakers if I'm not available. Um, I really think the most important thing we can do now as a community is to come together to support both uh, increased and improved regulations on social media platforms. Uh, there's a bill called COSA, the Kids Online Safety Act in Washington, and we all should be behind that. Um, I also think that it is way overdue that media literacy become mandatory in um, classrooms K through 12. Obviously what you're teaching a 12th grader is very different than what you teach in kindergarten, but even when you're have young children and you begin to tell them when you're watching cartoons that that's not real um, and that no, you cannot hit your brother with a sledgehammer the way Tom and Jerry are doing it. And no, if you buy that video that, you know, buy that toy that makes it look like you'll fly away like a helicopter, you can't really fly like a helicopter. I mean, that's media literacy. Um, so, so supporting laws, getting mandatory media literacy and saying no to the overuse of screens in every setting. I am pushing back real hard at my own kids' school. I just think enough is enough. They don't need, you know, we have centuries of experience that handwriting is connected to memory consolidation, um, reading, and I don't wanna see uh, short form content overtake my kids' ability to become a deep thinker. That's Julie Scalfo, S-C-E-L-F-O.com and getmediasavvy.org. Julie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate your interest in the subject. And I also um, appreciate that you introduced me properly in the beginning. My last name's Italian and my um, grandmother wanted to assimilate many years ago and we started mispronouncing it Scalfo. So I, sometimes I say Scalfo, sometimes I, I say Shelfo, but anything it's fine. <laughs> my wife's Buono and it's supposed to be Buono, so I understand completely. Oh my gosh, totally. That's funny. <laughs> Thanks to our listeners and our viewers for tuning in. I'm Chris Meek. We're out of time. We'll see you next week, same place. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.